Please be seated. Good evening to you. And everyone out in the courtyard, everyone at home. And uh, tonight we begin a new book on Sunday nights and the book of Luke. So if you turn to the gospel according to Luke, uh, Sunday, uh, it's unusual that uh, we start two new books on the same day, and so it is my portion today to kind of do two introductions, and uh, I'm always caught, like on the Sunday morning with uh, Colossians here, uh, an introduction's required to really kind of understand what we're heading into so that it can, the truth can impact our lives, but I never like to leave a passage with just the introduction. I always like to get somewhat into the passage, and so uh, I feel like this morning, I have no regrets for it, I th- a wonderful time in the Word, but if you've ever seen that uh, JBL advertisement with a guy sitting in the, car, in the chair and those speakers blowing out at him, it was a lot. And um, so uh, we have another introduction here this evening, and uh, we'll pull up another chair. Won't be quite like that, but... Uh, glad to turn to it. Let's turn, uh, let's, uh, uh, let me read here, uh, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them uh, to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very beginning, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And so as we begin this uh, gospel according to Luke, someone has uh, put uh, a definition of a gospel in this way. A gospel is a theological narrative about Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's very, very good. In other words, it provides us with a narrative of his uh, life, his birth, um, his ministry, his uh, teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection, uh, his ascension back into the heaven that he had uh, come from. And, uh, but Every bit of the narrative that we're supplied with in each of the four Gospels that are provided to us, uh, they're intended to teach us something uh, theological, something about God, something about His heart, His mind, His soul, uh, His heart and His mind uh, to impact our soul and our spirit. And uh, it's intended to fashion um, our understanding of Him and to, to uh, 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 develop and, and allow us to grow in a healthy way, in an accurate way in our, our relationship with him. Sometimes people look um, at the Bible and they see the four Gospels and they wonder, why in the world was it required uh, four Gospels? Why wouldn't God just take all of the uh, information and uh, details that are Uh, included in the four Gospels and then just kind of put them together in a chronology. So there would be, uh, we would have it all there, one right after the the other in in much the way you would find it in a chronological uh, Bible. And yet yet God doesn't do that. And he's deliberate in, in not doing it that way. The reason, one of the reasons is because each of the four Gospels provides us with this account, historical account of Jesus's life, uh, his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension 
during the 33 and a half years of his, uh, his life, but it examines those things, each one of them from a little bit different um, angle. In other words, Matthew is written uh, supremely, though not exclusively, but supremely to the Jew and uh, to reveal to the Jewish people that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And that's why the gospel according to Matthew is filled with Old Testament references uh, concerning the Messiah to show the Jews that Jesus was and is uh, their uh, Messiah. And so Matthew, as he writes this uh, gospel, being a Jew himself, he doesn't want them to believe in Jesus as the Messiah simply because he's saying that they should but they can see it from the highest authority uh, possible in the life of any Jew and certainly any Christian, and that is the Word of God itself. The Gospel according to Mark looks at Jesus from the vantage point of being a uh, servant, and that's why uh, when you read the Gospel according to Mark, it is the shortest of all of the Gospels, and it reads very, very quickly. Uh, it, it leaves out a great deal of the teaching that is contained in Matthew's gospel and in the other gospels, and it focuses very specifically upon Jesus' doing, the events related uh, to his life. Luke's gospel emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, and John's gospel emphasizes the deity uh, of Jesus. And none of, the, none of this is contradictory in any way. All of it is complementary. And, uh, and I think the Holy Spirit uh, does this as he, he takes these various events, puts them in the various Gospels, and uh, think about what he does. He takes a life of 33 and a half years, a three and a half year public ministry in which he is teaching and doing miracles. At the end of the Gospel, according to John, John said, listen, this is a selective um, uh, account of his teaching and of his miracles, that you might know that he is uh, the Son of God and God the Son. But if we were to record everything he did in those three and a half years, uh, the world couldn't contain the books that were, uh, would be written related uh, to that. And so uh, it takes all four of these Gospels, uh, looking at Jesus from their own particular view, uh, to give us a, uh, uh, the knowledge uh, of Jesus that the Holy Spirit wants us to have. And so in this Gospel, the theme is the humanity of Jesus and uh, his birth and his childhood in the Gospel of Luke are detailed for us because the emphasis is his humanity. The, his, uh, his birth and his early life, uh, the, uh, Luke contains far more details than any of the other Gospels. And in fact, uh, more than all of the other Gospels put uh, to, uh, together. His prayer life is emphasized in, the, in Luke's gospel, uh, again, is an emphasis on, on his humanity. As we'll discuss in just a moment, uh, Luke was 
a physician and, and almost certainly a Gentile. And uh, so while the gospel according to Luke is written to the entire world, it is written supremely in the, in the same way that Matthew's gospel is written supremely to the Jew. The gospel according to Luke is written to uh, the Gentile. The, uh, the Gentile is, is in mind uh, uh, supremely, that audience. And, uh, and as such, virtually half of the material that we're going to study in the gospel of Luke uh, it, it does not appear in the other gospels. So sometimes we can think, well, one gospel's the same as another, and you read one, and, and then the next one is simply a rep- repetition of the other one that you read. I mean, it's really something to realize. Fully half of what we will read in this gospel is not represented anywhere in the other uh, three, uh, three gospels. For instance, this gospel contains the largest number of parables of all of the gospels. And I think fascinating to realize that 18 of the 25 uh, parables that Jesus spoke and recorded for us in the scriptures, 18 of them are unique to the gospel according to Luke. They do not appear in, in any of, of, of the other uh, uh, gospels. And I think there's a reason for that. Uh, Matthew, when he writes his gospel, he's writing to the Jews. He's writing to a people who have a belief in the God of the Bible. They're steeped in the Old Testament. You don't have to get them uh, to believe that the Old Testament is the word of God uh, or to come to, uh, to uh, uh, know God and his existence and all. This is something that they were uh, absolutely steeped in. And so he's able to go all through his gospel making his point and then proving his point by simply bringing an Old Testament scripture to bear upon the point that he's making. And for the Jewish mind, the the issue is settled. That is, your point is made, the point is taken, and he moves on. When you're writing to Gentiles, they don't know the God of the Bible. Uh, They're out and out pagans in that day. They're idol worshipers. They have no history with, uh, by by and large, with the God of the Bible. Even the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, are not authoritative for them. They were never raised in them. And so how do you take the majestic truths of the Old Testament and then put them on such an elementary basis that someone with no background in God at all, the God of the Bible, to where they can understand it and begin to get a grasp of the spiritual truths that are being spoken. You tell them stories. You tell them stories. And you tell them stories that have spiritual significance to where they can go, ah, Now I see it. We can't talk to them about Joshua. You can't talk to them and say, this is just like the time of Judges. They don't know anything about it. But they know about grain growing in a field. And they know about sunrises and sunsets and all of these other kind of things. And so this is why we see the the parable so heavily represented in in the gospel uh, of, of, of Luke here. Luke was, uh, again, as I say, almost assuredly a Gentile, and it's really, we understand that to be true based upon a comparison of passages that are in the fourth chapter of the book of Colossians. 
And as Paul is uh, closing out that uh, letter to the Colossians, he speaks of the people who were with him uh, as, as he writes that letter. And he's very careful to describe uh, a group of people that were with him that were his Jewish brethren in one list. And then there's a gap, and then he describes others who were with him at the time of the writing of that letter and uh, who are clearly Gentiles. And Luke is named uh, in, in that, uh, that, uh, that list. And, and as such, he is the only Gentile author in the New Testament and uh, as well uh, as uh, the author not only of the gospel according to Luke, but also uh, the book of Acts. And as a result, he is the, uh, uh, in terms of God's instruments in, in providing us with the inspired word of God, he is the single most prolific in terms of sheer amount of words and sentences and chapters uh, writer in the New Testament. Uh, the writings of Luke, though a Gentile, uh, fills uh, over a quarter of the New Testament. And uh, that's interesting. I think if you were to ask the average person um, who is kind of the, the most prolific writer in the New Testament, even in terms of just the sheer amount of the New Testament that was written by God through him, we would all say the Apostle Paul by virtue of uh, the sheer number of letters that he wrote. But that distinction does not belong uh, to Paul. It actually belongs to Luke. Now as we get formally now into the, the passage here, you may look at it and you say, well, I, I read those first four verses along with you there and, and I didn't see Luke's name anywhere. You trying to hoodwink me? You're telling me Luke this and Luke that and I can't see Luke here at all. How in the world do we know that Luke is the author of, of uh, this, uh, this gospel? And uh, the, uh, the key to understanding that is that the writer of the book uh, of Acts begins uh, that, that book in much the very same way as the writer of the book of Gospel according to Luke does uh, here. Uh, he, he, the writer refers to someone named Theophilus, uh, indicating that the author of, of Luke was also the author of, of the book of Acts. And we also know uh, that Luke was the author of Acts because it's clear that in that narrative, he was a travel companion of the Apostle Paul. And there are what are known as those famous we passages in the book of Acts in which whoever is the author of the book of Acts, he is currently with Paul on those missionary journeys when he is describing the, the events. And when you take all of the people that Paul knew and people that traveled with him and, uh, and uh, you begin to kind of put them to the test of, of who might have been with him during uh, all of that, you eliminate all the companions uh, of Paul that are mentioned uh, by the author in the third person in those sections, all of uh, the companions of Paul who uh, ha have not been with him during those we sections, and you are left uh, solely with uh, Luke. It has to be Luke, and there is no uh, disputing Luke is the author of both the gospel and of, of the book of Acts. So that's how we know that Luke is, is the author. He was a physician. 
He was a doctor. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Luke, the beloved uh, physician. And uh, I don't know about you, I love my physicians. And the older I get, I got plenty of them. And <laughs> so I appreciate each one of them. But he was beloved, not merely for his uh, medical expertise, but for who he was spiritually and what he meant to uh, the, the Apostle Paul. And a tremendous asset to Paul and, uh, and to Paul in those missionary journeys. And, uh, and uh, it's nice when you have a doctor uh, that you love as, as, as he did. Now, today, uh, in our culture, uh, doctors are people who are uh, highly esteemed professionals. So uh, they go to school, they become physicians, or they become surgeons, whatever they, and uh, they uh, put up a shingle, and they set up shop, and they are a single individual in an office, and they serve multiple people, multiple families. It wasn't that way in the ancient world. For the most part, a medical doctor simply served the family that they were owned by. Uh, uh, most doctors were in fact slaves who at some point in time in their life showed an aptitude of some uh, kind in this particular area. Uh, obviously a wealthy family would send them off to be schooled in, uh, and learn the, the, the latest and the highest knowledge in terms of, of being a doctor and get that training and they would then come back into the family and they would then be the family doctor. They would treat the family, extended family, uh, friends of the family, how the family chose, but that's how uh, it it worked very, very often. Concerning Luke, it's widely speculated that and thought that originally Luke was the household uh, doctor for the family of Theophilus. And uh, when both Luke became a Christian and then Theophilus is, uh, became a Christian as, as well. Uh, Theophilus recognized God's calling upon Luke's life. He recognized that this man is set for a greater influence in human history than just being our family uh, physician. And so he releases Luke to give himself to that and that what Luke now does as, in, as an expression of his appreciation Uh, for that freedom that Theophilus had given to him, Luke expresses it in the highest way that he can by providing him with this gospel, with this record of the life and the ministry uh, of of Jesus Christ. Again, in Acts chapter 16, the personal pronouns, we and us are used that indicate that Luke was uh, a part of Paul's life in that uh, missionary journey. Uh, We also realize from other writings in the New Testament that Paul had some physical problems and uh, some difficulties in in his life. And so uh, it would have been very, very handy to have a physician as a part of your traveling team and then have one so uh, deeply spiritual as Luke was. When you look at the gospel according to Luke, uh, it is written with the precision uh, of a physician, really with the precision of a a surgeon. Uh, When you... (laughs) I I don't know... uh, I, I know that Dr. James is here tonight and uh, as a surgeon, and so I don't, I don't uh, rub elbows with uh, surgeons that much. He does, he can uh, correct me later on this or give me some insight, but 
it w- I, I, so maybe I should have done it, just Google it, gone to the highest authority of all before uh, this. But it would be very interesting to figure out what kind of personality type becomes a, a physician, who, who has that kind of aptitude to uh, go through all of the training. I guess you can't be afraid of blood, uh, so that counts me out. And, uh, and uh, cutting skin open and all that kind of stuff, that's a double out for me. Uh, but that's how you bleed, isn't it? But anyway, being uh, repetitious here, but to, um, to look at what kind of a personality excels in that, that environment. And uh, I don't know about you, but um, I want my doctor to be, a surgeon to be symmetrical, uh, not asymmetrical. I'm not wanting an artist type, uh, once they've got me open, where he sits there and just, uh, he or she, and looks at it and goes, where do we begin? (laughs) Do we begin at this end or that? No, we want a surgeon that knows that before they cut us open, the surgery begins here as much as you can know. Here's what we intend upon uh, accomplishing here. This is the final thing we will do. At that point, the surgery will be deemed a success and we will sew them up. In other words, a surgeon has that kind of precision, that kind of linear thought and and clarity. And Luke really, really possesses that. And and we see that all of the way through uh, uh, his his gospel uh, here. And uh, and the the clarity that we would uh, so highly esteem related to uh, surgery, how much more in uh, presenting the world with one of four gospels, that it wouldn't just be some obtuse, abstract bunch of pieces thrown together and they'll figure it all out, uh, but it begins someplace and it ends someplace with intention between the two things. And so he brings what uh, was an asset in his, uh, his uh, occupation and, and his skills there, and he brings it over to something that's even more important in the world, and that is uh, the spiritual side of life, a record of Jesus' life and ministry. You notice that he wrote it for someone, verse 3. See how we're just flying through here? Uh, he wrote it for someone named Theophilus, and Theophilus means a lover of God, or a friend of God, Theos, God, and Phileo, uh, love. And so he gives him the title, Most Excellent, and it uh, suggests that he uh, had a high position of some kind uh, in terms of his life, uh, probably a high position in in the Roman uh, Empire. And, and he, uh, Luke wrote this gospel, again, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit for the, the purpose, we're told here, of supplying to Theophilus this ordered account of the life and the ministry of, of Jesus in order, as Luke says here, that Theophilus can uh, be sure of the facts that he is hearing about Jesus and and the truth concerning Jesus that he was being instructed in in order that he would base his faith upon those facts and and his faith would be uh, firmly founded. So here we are, uh, varying ages within the room, but all of us... uh, Born at least in the uh, the uh, 1900s or the 2000s, right? 
And so we are used to the luxury of having a Bible in our hands and uh, having the Old Testament, having the New Testament in our hands. But when all of this is going on in church history, there's a fair chance that the gospel according to Mark has already been written. But you've got Christians, you've got people that are becoming Christians all over the Roman Empire. They hear the gospel, miracles are being done. They put their faith in Christ. They're born again by the Holy Spirit, the miracle of it. And yet they did not have the Bible like you and I have to say, oh great, I'm born again tomorrow morning, I'm going to start reading uh, the gospels about Jesus. It wasn't that easy to get good information. You had all kinds of fables going around, all kinds of crazy things being uh, said about Jesus. You didn't know what to believe. You didn't know what not to believe, except if you would have some access to an apostle who would give you that. And so for God to use Luke here to provide not only Theophilus, but that entire generation and us with an understanding of the life and the ministry of Christ that we can know is birthed by the Holy Spirit and is birthed from those who had firsthand knowledge of, of everything uh, that happened in Jesus' life and, and in his ministry. And it's kind of good to think about that a little bit because we, we have to force ourselves into that place. To imagine being born again. You are born again. And I know there would be whatever dynamic of the Holy Spirit upon the early church that would need to be there in the absence of having ready access to the epistles and to the gospels. And so he did that. But how hungry you would be. And then you hear this fable and that fable and this guy's just trying to get a big offering by saying these things and, and you don't know what to trust. And then to have a gospel like this come forward. So I mean, it's really the fact that we're separated 2,000 years from that generation of Christians, uh, it still causes, we can put ourselves in their shoes and causes us to think, wow, what a privilege to open up my Bible anytime and there are the four Gospels for me uh, to read. But it wasn't always so. So an accurate account of the life and the ministry of Jesus was and is uh, absolutely uh, invaluable. And so Luke is saying, here are the facts concerning uh, Jesus and Luke, uh, he, because he became a Christian later, following Jesus' uh, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And, uh, and so he wasn't an eyewitness to uh, those events, but uh, he had access to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He had access, cl clearly access to Paul, the other apostles, other eyewitnesses of the events. And, and he determined again with that surgeon-like uh, precision to uh, put all of this uh, to together in order that they and we might have a trustworthy uh, record of Jesus' life and ministry. He goes on now in uh, verse 5, and, and he begins now the account, and he begins not with the birth of Jesus, but he begins with uh, the birth of 
uh, and the coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner of, uh, of Jesus. And so he gives us the timing of this event. There was in the days of Herod, uh, the king of Judah. And he's just not throwing out you know, something to be uh, thrown out. When he talks about all of this happening during the days of Herod, it is in in order that even us, separated by the event by 2,000 years, would know this is a historical event. It occurred during the reign of this particular man. It's giving us facts. And, and sometimes you'll have people say, well, the Bible is just a, it's just a collection of fables and it's just a collection of, of people's writings. And then uh, whenever anybody says that, I know immediately I'm dealing with someone who's never read the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, there's dates, there's names, there's places. It doesn't read like a fable at all. It reads like an account, a historical account which is exactly what it is. And so that's why that is uh, then given to us there for the dating of of the start of these events. And at that time, there was a certain priest named uh, Zacharias, and he was of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and, uh, and ordinances of, uh, of the Lord, uh, blameless. And so here we have this description of the parents of John the Baptist, and, uh, and the description begins with a spiritual description uh, of them. So John the Baptist is going to be born into an extraordinarily spiritual uh, home. Zechariah was a priest. Uh, his name means the Lord remembers, and uh, she was descended from the priestly family of, of Aaron, who was the brother uh, of Moses. I mean, these are, these are very elite bloodlines that each of them uh, have. And the priest was required to uh, marry, according to the law of Moses, a, an Israelite uh, virgin, but she didn't have to necessarily be of the priestly tribe. But Zechariah marries Elizabeth, and she is of uh, the priestly uh, tribe. And her name means the oath of God. And uh, we're told here that they lived righteous lives before uh, the Lord. And so they, they were o- obedient to the word of God. They, they, they took the commandments of God very, very seriously. They walked with God in a, in a sober-minded uh, fashion. And God wants us to know that. And wants us to know that this was the kind of family that John the Baptist was, was born uh, uh, into. But you, you look at it and you say, well, okay, he's a priest. She's a descendant of priests. So, of course, they're going to be that way, as if nobody in, in that kind of a lineage is tempted in any way by the world. But what's important to realize is during the life of ministry uh, 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 and ministry of Jesus, that Judaism was completely dominated by the Pharisees and by the Sadducees. And Judaism had been completely hijacked away from God. The hypocrisy 
uh, of, of the Pharisees and the denial of the supernatural uh, by uh, the Sadducees. So it wasn't like, ah, oh, they're in a religious environment and of course they're going to come out the way that they're coming out here. No. They had to, in what is sometimes the, the hardest environment to live for God, is to be in an environment that you, generations of your people have been raised in and your family has been raised in and uh, it has now become apostate. It is now leading people away from God than toward God. And to look at that and in the privacy of your own relationship with God and say, I don't care what these people do or what they don't, even though they are esteemed as kind of the grand poobahs of Judaism, we will walk with God the way that God has called us to walk with him from the scriptures, even in this kind of a context. And it said an awful lot about them. I don't know how hard God had to look to find a husband and wife in this religious system now dominated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to find such a couple. But he did find such a couple in uh, Zacharias and, uh, and in uh, Elizabeth. And uh, they lived lives that were blameless as it related to the law uh, of, of Moses. Doesn't mean that they were uh, sinless at all or that they never uh, committed a sin. It means that they didn't practice sin. If they sinned, they turned from it. Their lives were characterized by uh, obedience to the word of God and, and really a, a very, very uh, remarkable uh, couple. And these are... These are the people in the word of God that uh, we need to make our examples in a relationship with the Lord. Never make an example in your life or in my life concerning Christianity, a Christian who is doing the very least in terms of getting into heaven, saved, on their way to heaven but uh, living as close to into the, in the world as, uh, as they can and still being confident that they can go in the rapture. And, uh, and as we get closer and closer to the end times where we see what is going to become uh, marks of, of uh, spirituality and what calls itself Christianity in the last days, they will not endure sound doctrine. Uh, the religious community that representing Christ will be ma- marked by and large by carnality. And we may be very well in that generation. I don't doubt that we are at all. And the importance of looking and saying, I will not make, even as they did not make the Pharisees and the Sadducees their model, but the word of God, we're going to need to do that same thing for ourselves in this age to stay faithful. And for God to look at our lives and say, all right, I can use them for this in, in my purposes. I am so thankful as a, as a, a, a junior high aged boy for uh, the day that my eyes fell upon uh, a man by the name of William McDonald. 
and uh, Bill McDonald, and he was a part, he would come to the church that we attended uh, at times in growing up, and he, it was a rotating pulpit, and he would come and teach uh, maybe two, three, four times a year. And I couldn't wait for the day that Bill McDonald is a junior high boy. I mean, is, is, is thick skulled and dumb as a kid could be. And uh, he would come and, and three, three men have impacted my life uh, uh, the most in terms of, uh, uh, of um, uh, in, in this particular way. I have a lot of peers, of the pastors on this staff. Uh, I don't want to eliminate that, the influence they've had on me uh, through the years. But in that, that early formative time, uh, it, it, uh, Gail Irwin uh, made Jesus explode to life to me. And uh, I, I, I am and would be a, a born Pharisee. And uh, God made sure that I came into uh, it, contact with Gail Irwin very early in my Christian life to see what Jesus was really about. Chuck Smith taught me uh, the power of the Word of God uh, and in its simplicity, uh, the power that it has. And uh, Bill McDonald taught me, and all of them taught me these things cross-sectionally, but supremely. Uh, he taught me uh, the power of an example. And he really, really lived it. And I'm so thankful for that heritage uh, in my life. Others have followed him through the years, but I hope uh, all of you have someone like that, a grandmother, a grandfather, an aunt, an uncle, a friend, a neighbor, someone uh, that ha- has something uh, like that, that you saw that and, was, and, it, and it impacted you. And if you haven't, then become that then for everyone that will uh, follow you, realizing how, uh, how uh, impactful uh, it, it is. And, and, uh, and so here is this description in verses 5 and 6 of, uh, of the spiritual condition of uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Do, do you realize that one day when, uh, if the Lord tarries uh, and I die and I go to heaven, or you die and you go to heaven, Uh, people are going to encapsulate our lives in probably a single sentence. No more than two verses. If you think think they're going to think of us and think of volumes, please. And and what what happens here with Zacharias and with Elizabeth is going to happen to every single one of us. People will be able to, at the end of our lives, encapsulate our lives in one or two sentences. They will describe us spiritually. And if you don't believe it, uh, just grab a, a Modesto B and uh, go to the obituary page and go to, uh, I assume they're doing funerals again, go to uh, 10 funerals this week in this town and uh, see if the people that get up and remember their loved ones don't remember them very, very concisely. And I have been in services, it's so sad, where uh, here is someone who is a Christian who has died, and the people that are giving the eulogies are agonizing 
to try and find something out of their largely carnal life to say something good about them in that environment. And then you go to other ones and it's effortless for everyone. And usually when you listen to eulogies at a memorial service, I mean, you've been to them, you know, they all, by the time three people speak, seven people speak, those one or two things rise to the surface. And you're able to say, that's what they were about. And uh, this is what uh, they were about uh, here spiritually. And what a wonderful legacy uh, that they, they left. So that's what they were spiritually. But in verse 7, there's a description of them physically. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. And so they're well advanced in years. Um, that's a nice way of saying they were old. And uh, the, but remember in the ancient world, the esteem for the elderly, for the older. So you didn't just say, well, they're old. And, uh, and so they were well advanced in years. They're in, I forget what translation of it in, in some of the verses in the Old Testament, speaking of someone who is older, uh, they, it is, he, is, he or she is described as uh, well stricken in years. And uh, where you look at them and you go, wow, life has beat them up. Looks like somebody took a stick to them from head to toe. I mean, the, the years have really uh, taken their toll on them. So uh, if you're in that age group, and I am in that age group, now you know why when you roll over in the bed to get up in the morning, uh, it takes you a couple of minutes uh, to get everything uh, all working together to begin your day. But, but, but here is the respect that is shown here. No children, and uh, the cause of, uh, of the, the failure to have children, it, we're plainly told that it was Elizabeth. She was uh, uh, barren in, the, uh, in, in that regard. Now, uh, we look at it, and, and uh, you say, okay, they didn't get to have uh, children. Well, there's a lot of people like that, and so what's the big deal? But in the ancient world, in uh, Jewish culture, not a good thing. Because what the Jewish uh, uh, rabbis did was they took a couple of scriptures from the Old Testament where God said right at the beginning with Adam and Eve that they were to be fruitful and multiply. In the Psalms, children are described as a gift from the Lord. And putting those verses together, they then began to look with suspicion upon anyone who didn't have children as being someone that they, that they were cursed by God because of secret sin in their life. So here is a, a couple that really wants children. They, ca they can't have children, but they've got to deal with this additional stigma uh, on, uh, on top of it. It is interesting that you see how highly esteemed they are uh, by uh, the Holy Spirit and the description of them and the tremendous privilege that is going to be given to them to bring the forerunner of Messiah into the world, John the Baptist, uh, as the forerunner, and, uh, and yet th this is where they were. No children, the stigma attached with it. And, and sometimes we can think that 
when difficulty comes our way, how come we can't have children? How come a husband? How come I don't have a wife? How come I, this? And how come I got this disease? And I got that disease? And, and all, all of these kind of things. I'm a nice person. And why would something like this uh, happen to me? And, and, and the thinking is that when uh, bad things or hard things happen uh, to godly people, there must be something wrong with us. But it's not true at all. Uh, they were godly people. He, not one thing is listed wrong related to them, and yet uh, deep hardship in their life in, uh, in, in this regard. And, and it's important for us even today where uh, we are as superstitious uh, can be as Christians. We are as goofy with the scriptures as uh, any ancient rabbi would want to be in not rightly dividing them and saying, this adds up to this and this, and it must mean that this person isn't right with God because look at this series of catastrophes that have come into their life. And there's one person that, that comes to mind here where in, in the last, I would say, four months in, in knowing their situation, it is... Uh, four absolutely mind-breaking trials that have come into their life, one right after the other. And I mean, it, you just look at it and you go, I, it'll be the grace of God that gets them through that. And it will be the grace of God that gets them through that. But that tendency can be, what's wrong with them? That something, a series like this could happen in their life. And we always have to be careful of, of judging people um, uh, in, uh, in that way. And so here they are, uh, well along in years, advanced in years, now physically speaking, no hope of, of, uh, of having a child. We're going to find out in a moment that they had apparently prayed for years, if not decades, that God would give them a, a, a child. And yet here, no. And so it was that while he, that is Zacharias, was uh, serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went uh, into uh, the temple of the Lord. And so uh, Zacharias' lot fell for him to burn incense in the, not the holy of holies of the temple, but the, the uh, uh, most, the, uh, the holy place. And, uh, and so uh, this was a, a absolute pinnacle of his uh, professional spiritual uh, career that he's going to find out, learn about the birth of a son that is going to come. Now, uh, in, uh, in that day, there were, uh, Zacharias was one of about 18,000 priests in all. Uh, and uh, in Israel, Zacharias, we're told, he belonged to the division of Abijah. Uh, the division of Abijah was one of 24 divisions of the priests that came into being under uh, King David's uh, organization uh, of, uh, of the priests at that time. And, uh, and, and as a part of, uh, of that, uh, one of those 24 divisions, twice a year, uh, the, the descendants of, this, of Abijah would come and they would serve at the temple from Sabbath to Sabbath. You were on 
pinnacle duty, kind of the highest uh, duty for those, those two weeks um, each, uh, each year. And so they would uh, serve there in addition to uh, being present at the temple during the three great Jewish feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, uh, the Feast of Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so he is out of 18,000 priests. He is chosen on that day to go into the holy place, the entry compartment of uh, the two compartment uh, thing that constituted uh, the temple in order to light incense uh, uh, to the Lord. And so uh, because there were so many priests at that time uh, and um, there were only so many uh, priestly duties that were associated with inside of the, ta- uh, the, the temple itself. Uh, most often, most priests never got to go inside, not one time in the course of their year, uh, in the course of their lifetimes. And if, so if you got to go in even once in your life, it was uh, a, a privilege beyond uh, description. Tremendous, tremendous uh, honor. And so God chooses this time, this place, to reveal to Zacharias that he is going to uh, have a son. And he goes in to uh, uh, offer incense on the altar of incense. And the altar of incense was located uh, right inside the entry to uh, the temple. The incense would be burned on the fire. And as the incense would be burned on the fire, the smoke would then rise up to God and it represented the prayers of the people. And how God saw their prayers and how he sees our prayers. Something that's sweet smelling and a fragrance to him. He loves to hear, uh, hear our, our prayers. And so he goes into the temple, and he goes in, as he goes into the temple there, we're told in verse 10 that the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so what's the use of offering incense to represent prayer rising up to God if you don't have anybody praying? <laughs> so they would... Uh, they, uh, they would do in reality outside what was being represented by the priest inside uh, of, of the temple. And so Zacharias, as he enters in here now, he is all alone in this room. And it is, uh, it is dark and uh, uh, relatively so, very, very dimly uh, lit. And, uh, and so uh, for that particular moment that he is in there, he's got the incense, he's going to offer it on the altar of incense. He is the focus of the Jewish people in, in all of the world in, the, in, in that moment. And then as he does that, we're told in verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of uh, incense. And so he lights the, uh, the, the, the incense, he burns it, and as it burns, he sees somebody standing there. You ever been someplace where you thought you were the only person? And, that, and then you turn, I mean, you've you got to put yourself in his shoes. He has gone into a relatively small compartment. It is not a big room. 
Nobody else is supposed to be in there. Nobody else can be in there. Nobody goes into either the holy place or the most holy place. If there was any place in the entire world that you would go into as a Jew or as a priest and know that you were alone, it would be to enter into the temple. So in his mind, it can't even be a possibility that there's going to be anybody else in the room. And then as the incense is offered, there is this angel standing there. I mean, you, you'd think you might jump right through the roof or the, the ceiling of the room. It would freak me out uh, completely. And it freaked him out because when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's double troubled right there, the, the way it's being described. And then the angel, we'll find out it's the angel Gabriel in just a moment, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, for the simple reason that he was terrified. He said, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Oh no, this guy knows my name. Uh, Does he have my ID? Uh, For your prayer is heard, the prayer for a son, whether they continued to pray it or not, or it had been an ancient prayer, long prayer, long time ago that they had ceased praying. We don't really know, but he says, your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Maybe you've heard in, uh, in a sermon related to prayer, there's an old saying, and the sayings that become old sayings become old sayings because they some, say something important. And uh, related to prayer, that God's delays are not his denials. And uh, that's hard for someone like me that wants it to happen fast, and if it doesn't happen fast, I figure it's off the table. And, uh, and so, uh, it had been many, many years, all through their, uh, their young adult life, their midlife, into old age, no child, despite all of the prayers. And, uh, and they would think, okay, now that's over. It was, it was good to pray. I mean, you never knew, but let's, let's be done with that. And now he, he's told here uh, that he is, uh, he is going to um, uh, have the child and that his name is to be, uh, name given to him is to be John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Not only will he bring joy to you and to Elizabeth, but he's going to bring joy to uh, the, the, the entire Jewish people. And then he's described here, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Uh, it doesn't mean that John the Baptist uh, took a Nazarite vow, but it does mean, uh, because we don't see uh, other aspects of it in his life, but he did not partake of alcohol his, his entire life. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, We're filled with the Holy Spirit when we become a Christian prior to uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the Holy Spirit coming as he did on the day of of Pentecost and in John chapter 20 where Jesus breathed on the disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. This uh, anointing of the Holy Spirit was given to a select people in order to have the power to fulfill uh, the thing that God was calling them to. It's one of the great uh, privileges and blessings of the new covenant is that uh, all of us are uh, filled and in indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so he will, he, uh, he will 
be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Before he's born, that'll happen. We'll see that happen later in the chapter. Uh, we won't get to it tonight. And, uh, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, uh, their God. This is going to be the function of John the Baptist as the forerunner to prepare the Jewish people for the Messiah who would come following him. And he will also go before him, that is Jesus, that is the Messiah, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You remember in the Old Testament, Elijah uh, called the Jewish people to repentance and back to God. And, uh, and that's the kind of power that would be on John the Baptist's life uh, to turn the hearts of the fathers uh, to the children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared uh, for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my well wife is well advanced in years. So he calls himself an old man, but she's well advanced in years. This is wisdom on the part of a husband. My mother didn't tell me, my mother told me and my twin brother about three pieces of wisdom growing up. Uh, we entered into life absolutely a blank slate, for, for better or for worse. But one of the things she did uh, drum in our heads was, you never ask a woman her age. And uh, that's a touchy subject ev evidently, and, and so I won't broach it beyond that. And, and I've always listened to my mother related to that. But we see this, uh, this respect that he has here, and basically he's saying, we're way too old. I mean, 40 years ago, sure, but come on. I mean, this is, we're way past all of that going on. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. And so here is uh, Zacharias and uh, essentially what he's doing here is he's asking the angel for a sign that all of it will be true. So he looks at it, it's humanly impossible in his mind. He asks for a sign, and his request for a sign was an indication of his unbelief. He did not believe uh, that, that this could come to pass. Give me something other than your word and your promise uh, to uh, trust in. And uh, be careful when uh, you say that to an archangel, just in case you're ever around an archangel, uh, to put into doubt that what they're telling you is the truth. Zacharias clearly offends Gabriel, and Gabriel in no uncertain terms tells him his name, that he, uh, he comes from the very presence of God in heaven. He had been sent with this message to bring to uh, Zacharias, and that ought to be enough for believing the promise. How often do you even come into the holy place to offer incense? How often have you uh, come in here and run into an archangel? And given the, the circumstances that are happening here, that ought to be enough for you to believe uh, the promise that, that God is giving you here, the promise that I'm bringing from heaven uh, to you. So uh, Gabriel's a little bit uh, upset at this, this unbelief and Archangels have a way of, of uh, taking care of, uh, of this kind of thing. And so uh, he, he uh, then uh, said to him, uh, but behold, you want a sign? Uh, you will be mute 
and not able to speak until the day that these things take place, till the birth of your son, because you did not believe my words, uh, which uh, will be fulfilled in their own time. They're going to happen whether you believe it or not. But you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. You're not going to be able to talk until uh, that boy is, uh, uh, is, is born. And uh, so you see, I mean, you look at here is an arch, here's an archangel, here is the angel Gabriel. He is offended that his, um, uh, his truthfulness has been uh, uh, presented to him as being even uh, uh, possible that he is lying or not telling the truth. And, and so you, you take it the next step higher, uh, the, the offense that it, it can be on our part to ask for God uh, for a sign to confirm a promise he's already given in his word. If he's given in his word, he's going to keep that, that promise. If he wants to give us a sign, that's fine, but not to, uh, to uh, ask for that. And so the people, they were waiting outside for Zacharias and they marveled uh, that he lingered so long in the temple. Usually they got in there, they were done in uh, I don't know how long, but a very short period of time and they would come back outside and now uh, they're uh, stopped their praying and they're concerned whether he's had some kind of an incident in there. Something supernatural has happened. And when he came out, he couldn't speak to them uh, because he was mute and uh, they perceived uh, that he had seen a vision in the temple for he had beckoned uh, to them and remained speechless. And so it was, it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house and uh, now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, <laughs> can you imagine? pregnant after all of these years and she hid herself for five months saying thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he uh, looked on me to take away my reproach among my people again uh, that that reproach that sting the stigma of being childless was something that uh, she really felt and was thankful not only for the, the, the child and, and the coming birth of the child and the promises associated with them, but to have that stigma lifted off of her. And we'll stop there tonight and pick up things in uh, verse 26 um, next week. And at this rate, we'll definitely be raptured before uh, the end of the gospel according to Luke. Let's stand together now and uh, we'll close in prayer.